Welcome to the BGSM Podcast. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I am very excited to be speaking with Amelia Boone. Amelia is a world champion obstacle racer, an elite ultra runner, and a full-time lawyer working for Apple. She has won over 30 races, including the world's toughest mudder three times, and has made more than 50 podium finishes. She is one of the most accomplished athletes in the history of obstacle course racing. Amelia, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I know this phrase makes you cringe, but I was hoping you could start today by sharing your story with our listeners. Absolutely. I am, well, I'm an attorney, first of all, but I am also an athlete. And so I am a four-time world champion in obstacle racing, um, and I have been competing for about 10 years now at a high level, um, and also an ultra marathoner as well. And so done a, done a bit of the endurance sports world, but something that I recently came out about and that I spoke to was actually the fact that I have been dealing with an eating disorder for the past 20 years. And I was diagnosed uh, with anorexia when I was about 16 years old and went through various iterations of being recovered, different times of struggling more, um, all while I was competing, actually, and recently decided to seek intensive treatment um, for about three months. I decided at the age of 35 to uproot my life, take a leave of absence from work, and um, actually, you know, seek some solid recovery this time around. What motivated you to break your silence and start a conversation? Yeah, so I, to be honest, a lot of it is can be somewhat selfish for me because it is very, I think, therapeutic to talk about these things. But frankly, I had seen and been inspired by a lot of athletes who had talked about having eating disorders in the past or who had struggled with or overcome eating disorders. But the conversation that I saw was always people talking about these these issues long in the past, that that was an issue that they had, but it was no longer an issue. And I thought it was important to say that, like, hey, not everyone is at that stage. And you can talk about it while you're still kind of face down in the arena going through it. And so I thought that it was, you know, it was an opportunity for me to kind of live out my recovery and go through that along with other people. So many other athletes who are going through the same stage who may not be able to call themselves recovered, but who are battling it day in and day out. Amelia, you have been very successful in the obstacle course racing world. And I was wondering how has your success as an athlete affected your perception of what has been going on? I think one of the biggest things, um, and actually one of the things that delayed me seeking treatment or actually realizing that I had a problem was the fact that I could kind of put it on the back burner as long as I was doing well in sport. So being successful, being a world champion, I was telling myself as long as I was winning, there's clearly not a problem because I'm performing well. I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm healthy. I'm, beating everybody else. So I could kind of delude myself into thinking that there was nothing wrong. And then also telling myself, okay, like everybody seems to have an issue with food and especially in the athlete world, like everybody seems to be on a specific type of diet or everybody seems to be, you know, eating healthily, et cetera, et cetera. 
So I thought, I'm like, well, then maybe if everybody else has a problem, then maybe I'm not that bad. So for a long time, all of that success just kind of kept me thinking, okay, well, this isn't really an issue. This isn't really an issue. This isn't really an issue. Can you speak a little bit about your relationship with food and how it's changed over the years? For many, many years, I think that I was, I thought that the goal was kind of to get by on the minimal amount of food as possible um, to try and stay, you know, kind of lean and mean and, and, and ready and ready to race. And I never really saw it as a tool to really fuel myself and really recover and really embrace it. And so I think that, you know, through recovery, that's one of the things that I'm have been really working on in, in honing the importance of eating enough and eating plentifully and, um, you know, really understanding that that's my friend versus, and then if I don't do that, like, (laughs) then it's going to keep me from sport. If I'm not eating well, it's going to keep me from sport. And what are the conversations that you've had with yourself about body image? That's a great question because I think that, to be honest, with, when I was first diagnosed with an eating disorder, um, you know, back when I was 15, 16, body image really wasn't a portion of it, really wasn't a component of it. But then as I started to win races, as I started to get media attention, I was doing photo shoots, I was seeing pictures of myself running and like next to nothing because that's kind of what we wear when we obstacle race. And I started to become kind of cognizant of it and how my body looked. And I started to hear feedback from people that necessarily wasn't flattering. And so I unfortunately started to in my mind, focus less on the function and the performance of my body and instead focus on the aesthetic of it. And I ended up with four stress fractures within about two and a half, three years. And my body looked super fit this entire time. I mean, that was people were saying like, oh, you're like the ideal aesthetic, but I was incredibly injured and I couldn't compete. And so what has shifted and what I realize now, like it doesn't mean anything if you look the part as an athlete, if you're too injured to even get to the start line. And so for me, I'm now really, really placing that, that aspect or like the importance on the function, on what the body can do in performing and not what it looks like. Because I think that athletes, for better or worse, because of the media pressure, because of, you know, what people say we should or should not look like, start to think about that body image portion. And that's unfortunate. What are common myths or misconceptions about athletes and eating disorders? Yeah, I think the first one really would be that to have an eating disorder, the person has to be extremely emaciated or underweight. Uh, There are many, many people, I'd say vast majority of of athletes who deal with eating disorders may actually fall into a quote-unquote normal BMI. And even though BMI is a really bad measure of anything, especially for athletes, but I mean, my personal experience is that I technically on, on like a chart, my BMI was always totally normal. And so people would think, well, she doesn't have a problem. Or I would convince myself that I didn't have a problem. Also, not all eating disorders look the same. I think that a lot of people will think that athletes will veer towards the eating super healthy and restrictive type of diets, um, you know, the orthorexia type of diets. And so they're kind of looking out for that. 
mine personally did not manifest in that way. Um, I had a restrictive diet, but I actually, I geared towards like eating sugar and pop tarts and more what we would call processed or junk food instead of, instead of what everybody else thought, you know, like the orthorexia type of eating. Um, and I think finally too, I, one of the things that people always think, a lot of people think that if you are exercising, if you're a runner, if you are in sport, then you're doing that because of your eating disorder, that that's like a form of purging. And I think for some people that can be for sure. Um, but I think that there's always a lot of work to be done around that. Sometimes sport can actually be a very healthy thing for people. It's always just about the motivations behind it. What or who prompted you to seek treatment? There were a number of things. I think that um, I, I finally got tired of the repetitive injuries. Um, and it was kind of the shame that I was holding myself that I would get another stress fracture. And I would say, I, I don't know, I'm doing everything right. My mileage is low and I'm building back slowly and I'm doing all the strength training, you know, and, and every time I would go in with another bone injury, my doctors, my orthopedists, my physical therapists would always ask, they would ask like, what's your bone density? Uh, like, let's get blood panels and everything like that. And that those always came back pretty normal. But then they would also generally, like Martha Pace would ask, like, are you getting periods? How are your hormones? It was this kind of shame internally where I knew that I had, I would tell them I had a history of an eating disorder, but I wouldn't tell them that I was still struggling with it. But I, after a while, enough repeated questions and I thought to myself, okay, no, I'm still struggling with this. Like, I clearly know something that I'm doing isn't working and I can't do it on my own anymore. Who makes up your treatment team? Yeah, so now I currently work with a um, dietitian who specializes in both eating disorders and in athletes. Um, so it's kind of a unique speci uh, specialty, which is very useful. And then I have an outpatient therapist um, who does have like a sports-specific focus as well, um, along with the eating disorder focus. Um, and then I, I work with yeah, I work with like a, a doctor to to track weight and vitals and labs and everything like that. And then I, I have my sports team and my physical therapist and my orthopedist and whatnot. Um, and so that's my current kind of like outpatient team. Um, I was at a facility where I was, it was like a day patient program. And so I had a much, much more, a, a much broader team at, at that point. You've obviously had a lot of experience with different clinicians in recent times, and I guess over the years. And I was wondering what has worked well with different clinicians when it comes to eating disorders? I think the number one thing that has worked really well for me is for the clinician to really understand the desire for sport and to and to acknowledge, you know, that my main goal, my goal is to be competing and be competing in a health, healthy way. Um and really kind of align with that. I think that a lot of clinicians, if they're not if they're not trained in eating disorders, they I think the first thing is to kind of say, well, well, you have to get out of sport. You know, you have to get out of sport to heal. You need to get out of sport. And I just I don't think that's really realistic. I think that and actually you tell an athlete that and they may actually fall further back into their disorder because then they won't want to seek help if they think, OK, well, if I tell somebody 
they're going to say, I can't compete anymore. Or I can't be a part of the team. And clearly that there are times when there may be like medical in things that need to be stabilized that would prevent somebody from playing. But overall, I think having a clinician that, that will work with you to get to that. And then I think really asking the hard questions as much as I didn't like when my doctors would say things like, are you getting your period? Or, um, you know, have you had your hormones checked? Or how is your eating? Because it's kind of an awkward question. I think that it's really effective. And I mean, the, the, goal, the, the thing is the clinician can't be a police, you know, you can't really monitor. And so you, sometimes it's best probably to take them, to take the person at the face value of what they say. If they say, yeah, I'm eating fine, then it's, it's not the role to be kind of like probing further into that. But I think just even asking the question, if somebody is ready for help, if they are kind of in that space where they're going to get, where they think that they're going to get treatment, like just the question will prompt that. Because as I've learned, as I've known, look, I've dealt with this in various iterations for the past 20 years. You can't force somebody to get help who isn't ready. But being open to just talking about it and kind of floating those questions can actually help a person who's kind of thinking that they're ready move to that line. And if we look at it from the other side, what hasn't been so helpful with the different clinicians that you've seen over the years? You know, I think it really, the vast majority of these have to do with the interaction and, and comments. So number one thing I would ask all clinicians out there is to not comment on a an athlete's body and specifically by the, the phrase of like, you look fit. So I've gone into a doctor before, a, you know, an orthopedist or sports doctor, and they've been like, you look super fit. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm barely eating anything and I'm, you know, like destroying my body, but they're telling me that I look fit. So I clearly am doing something right. And, and it's very subjective. You know, I think that there have been times where, where I, I get conflicting inputs. And so really just not commenting on an athlete's body whatsoever, um, I think is really best practices. And then the other thing that I've that I've come to understand is that it's really important for me to have a clinician who will not fragilize me. I have had instances because I, I do have a history of stress fractures. I do, but to have a clinician kind of repeat that back to me and say, well, you need to be careful because you have a history of stress fractures or, you know, given your eating disorder, you probably shouldn't be doing this X, Y, and Z. It really, uh, I know that it takes away any confidence that I have as an athlete. If I'm thinking there being like, I'm fragilized, like I can't, my body can't withstand anything. So I think really like building confidence and giving hope is so, so, so important. And to kind of, to take that, to avoid any type of comments that would make an athlete feel more fragile or feel like they have to be handled with kid gloves because they've disclosed, you know, that they have an eating disorder or they have a history of bone injuries, for instance. What does the stigma associated with eating disorders look like within the athletic community? I think there are a number of misconceptions. And I think that the, the biggest stigma is that it's, something that young female athletes 
deal with and only young female athletes. I'm 35 years old. I am by no means in the athletic world, a young spring chicken. And I think that there was a lot of shame for me and coming out and admitting at this point in my life that I was still dealing with this. And I can't even imagine I was, I was in at my treatment facility. I was there with some male athletes as well. And you know, and who struggle just the same. And sometimes if not more, because it's something that men in, in general as stereotype are, aren't encouraged to talk about as much. And so I think that breaking down those, those stereotypes and learning that, you know, eating disorders do not have an age. They do not have a gender. They do not have a body type. And so I think that, you know, those are really important things for sure. How else should we and how can we change the way we are talking about eating disorders, both within the clinical setting and out in the public? I really think that, well, there are a number of things within to to change how we're talking about eating disorders. First of all, I think that we need to talk about them more because there's a lot of shame around them in athletics and people don't want to talk about them because of the consequences of potentially being removed from the team, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so if there's anything, it's, it's talking about them without, without blame, you know, without, without stigma and to be really open to learn from it and to understand that the eating disorder, you know, isn't the athlete and that actually sport can also be a very healthy part of recovery. Um, and more and more, I think clinicians are, are learning that, you know, sport can be, can be part of um, eating disorder recovery and that it's not something that has to be taken away. But I think that, you know, it's, it's really important, most of all, to just talk about it more and to not stigmatize it and to not remain quiet about it. In your blog post that was published on the 8th of July this year, that was then republished in the Outside magazine, you mentioned that you felt you represented Red S. And I was wondering, what made you feel this way? And what should clinicians know about Red S from the athlete perspective? Yeah, I mean, I... frankly, I didn't know much about it myself um, until a few years ago. And I think at that time when I learned about it it was the female athlete triad. And, but we've moved beyond that to Red S. And I mean, I felt that way because look, I have a long history of disordered eating. Um, I have repetitive bone injuries and I wasn't getting my period. But I think the thing that was important for me as an athlete and important for that, I think that clinicians should know is really at least for women, is that is that period aspect can go missed. And understanding, like, now everybody's talking about, like, it's, you know, 10 years ago, people were telling me, oh, it's okay, you don't have a period. Like, you know, you're an athlete, you'll get it back, et cetera, et cetera. But I, frankly, so first of all, I have an IUD, um, a hormonal IUD. And so I only was able to find out that I wasn't having periods by doing a hormonal like blood panel workup and learning that my estrogen levels were pretty much next to nothing. Um, so any athlete, I think if an athlete mentions to you like, Oh, I have an IUD, the number one thing should be like, well, we need to check out what is going on. If you would be getting a period, if you didn't have one. Um, and the same thing for an athlete who's on birth control, like the pill, who's like, Oh yeah, I'm getting a period 
But you don't know that unless you actually, because that's like synthesized by the exogenous hormones. So I think that's for me is like number one, because I didn't know for many years, I just assumed I was getting a period. And uh, I mean, in hindsight, maybe I could have prevented some bone injuries um, without knowing that. Before we let you go, can you leave our listeners, the sport and exercise medicine community, with three clinical tips for helping athletes when it comes to eating disorders? I'd say the first one is really to understand that an athlete can be at a healthy weight, quote unquote, with a BMI um, that's in the normal range and still be suffering from not only an eating disorder, but be suffering from red S as well. I definitely think that the number one is to is to look past the number on the scale. And then that kind of dovetails in with the second one that if you are approaching an athlete who you are concerned about that may be suffering for, from an eating disorder, number one thing is to not make it about weight. If you have a close relationship with them, if you're a coach, if you're a practitioner, it's something that's more about behaviors or about how they seem overall. But for better or worse, people suffering from eating disorders, if you make a comment about weight, they're either going to be super defensive or sometimes take it as a compliment. Be like, oh, I'm losing a lot of weight. That is, they should, they, maybe I should continue on this. So I think that, that finding ways to talk about it in ways that are beyond a number on the scale is, is definitely important. And finally, I mean, and this is something I mentioned earlier, I think the key is just really to give hope and to, and confidence to the athlete and to say that this is something that they'll get through because it is a very, very frustrating path. And I've had many times where I've just felt like I'm going to be broken for the rest of my life as an athlete. And it's not something that I can change. But to have a team and to have practitioners, you know, tell me like, no, we'll get through this. And you know, you'll come out better on that side and that you are strong. And that you know, that this is something that sport can be in your life. That's very, very important. Amelia, thank you very much for sharing your story today with our listeners. And on behalf of the whole BJSM community, thank you for being so brave and for shining a light on an area that we all believe needs much needed attention. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this BJSM podcast with Amelia Boone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a review and connect to our social media channels. You can listen to a new, clinically relevant BJSM podcast every Friday, and there is no better place to find them than on the BJSM app. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.